personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, my name is Debbie Reynolds. They call me the Data Diva. This is the Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast, where we discuss data privacy issues with industry leaders around the world with information that businesses need to know now. I have a special guest on the show, Jennifer Hamilton. She is a Chief Legal Officer at Xtero Corporation. Nice to meet you. Great to meet you. Thanks for having me. Well, actually, that's not true. We met before. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we met at a conference in Chicago. Um, it was an e-discovery conference uh, that I typically would go to. And this was, I think, this was the first year in, you know, since COVID, that they had started having in-person events. And so I was able to jump over there and we met and uh, you're you're a handbag and scarf fanatic like me, so we had lots of stuff to talk about and technology, and I thought you'd be fun to have on the show. So thank you so much for joining. Yep, same here. Now, I always say this, and it's true, I love to talk to lawyers who work at technology companies, because I feel like you have such a deep perspective on technology, because you're you know, you are a customer of your organization and as technology and, and data people, you just touch on so many different aspects of not only just uh, legal and compliance, but understanding the, the data flows within business. So if you can, why don't you give me a bit of a background around about you and how you came to your role at Exterial? Well, my dad was in technology. He developed software billing programs for attorneys when I was growing up. And I worked for him for the summer before college. And I ended up with a degree in business marketing. And then it seemed to me, as I started my first job, I was selling computers to the federal government for Gateway. And it occurred to me that that wasn't going to be my long-term career. And so I went to law school instead, and I started my journey as a lawyer at a law firm, practicing in court, learning the rules of civil procedure, and had really fabulous experience with it. But I was also interested in going in-house so I could be more proactive, so I could build solutions, maybe be more creative uh, and helping companies manage risk. And I received an opportunity to go in-house, in fact, to build an e-discovery program. This was in 2006 on the eve of the new federal rules of civil procedure. And so this was a next, like a na- natural next step for me with my interest in technology and software platforms, working for my dad and just being driven to solve problems and be a change agent. This is where it all came together for me. And In the course of the 15, almost 15 years I was at John Deere, we did a lot of cool things as an e-discovery team. We developed a scalable global e-discovery and data transfer program. We implemented different technologies. So I drew on my experiences um, with my dad's company and selling computers. And then ultimately, you know, received the recognition from cost savings and risk mitigation and and got to feel rewarded for 
the cool things we got to do, the company offered us. And, and I learned I liked building teams. And I also learned I liked building programs, not necessarily only e-discovery programs. Uh, and so that really put me in a position to think more broadly about my career. And so I went in-house as in a similar role to who I am now for Haystack ID, professional e-discovery services firm. And then ultimately the CEO of Xtero came to me and asked me if I'd be interested in helping build out the legal compliance program for Xtero. And we'd known each other for a number of years. Uh, we had bought the Xtero technology and used it. Um, and he appreciated that I had a unique perspective from all these different angles. So that's where I am today. And, you know, for me, I've loved this journey because initially I felt schizophrenic almost and in, in my different interests. My mom's an artist. My dad's a CPA and a, and a technologist. Uh, and, you know, how is that all going to fit together? And with, with this role today, having a, a broader role to build a law department, but also to support our, our clients in solving their problems. There's a lot of creativity and artistry in it. We know from doing it, you're not in your head that, you know, it's, it's as much of an art as it is a science. And, and then you get to, you know, continue to solve problems, but also I, I get the opportunity to steer solutions with an Xtero for our customers and then connect our customers with each other and talk about what's working, what doesn't work. So I really get the best of all the worlds now. Yeah, your your backstory really resonated with me. I read actually my research team was reading up on you and they really loved you, by the way. Uh they love stories about you and your dad and your mom. And uh, you know, I resonate with that because, you know, my father was a um a mechanical engineer. He he was very curious, and I think that's where I get a lot of my curiosity from. But my mother, she's very uh, common sense woman. So, so I'm just kind of my plain spokenness. I think I get that from her. So I see a lot of, you know, your appearance influencing you and the work that you do. And you're such a personable, nice, fun person. And I knew that we would get along really great because you just have all these different interests, but I think it makes you more interesting. It probably gives you a lot more creative ways to be able to express yourself and, and be able to, to, to excel in this type of role, right? Definitely. This is, this is a new world for all of us. And, and I've talked about this in the past. Um, you may have seen in your research, but I liken where we are with privacy to where we were in 2006 and, and e-discovery. And I've called e-discovering privacy close cousins because there's there's some rules that have been laid out, but we don't actually know what compliance with those rules really looks like. We don't know what the con intended or unintended consequences are of the different processes we put in place or technologies we're using. And we're in this period of just improvising and experimenting and seeing what works. And then trying to build on what makes sense that, that we've done in the past. So it's like everything's a pilot test. Um, and, and then the regulations this is interesting to me. My view is the regulations have gotten ahead of us in the law, usually are in the technology world. 
right? Usually the technology gets ahead of the law and I think there's been a time it's done that. Now I think in some ways the law is ahead of the technology, which can be a good thing. It can influence the technology as long as it doesn't stifle, you know, that, that innovation. Uh, and so we're in a unique time where there's so much complexity to the work. We don't want to invent the wheel. We want to draw on what we've learned in the litigation world and the e-discovery world um, and, and apply it to cyber risk and to, and to the privacy regulations and coming up with really practical grounded solutions. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree. I say that a lot. I think you're right about where we are right now in privacy. It is a whole new world. It's kind of people creating things, figuring out what works. Uh, I think that's very accurate. Um, tell me a little bit about your working within or your organization with people in, in these different teams, right? Because I think there's been so, so much siloing uh, in the past of, you know, like say the cyber people, the privacy people, e-discovery people. And so now there has to be, in order to be successful in the future, there has to be more of a symbiotic relationship between those teams and how they work. So how how do you how do you work in this 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 environment where maybe in the past those silos, you know, there was a reason why those silos existed. Obviously they're different subject matter experts in those teams, but how do you work where those teams get to work together more? Yeah, there's a quote that I love called, it says, progress depends on unity. And, you know, we, we like to think that if we, you know, a strong leader can push change and, you know, create progress very quickly. And it really isn't, the case at all. And it took me many years and some heartache at, at Deer to learn that in a very large organization. And, and yet we aren't set up traditionally in most companies to drive that kind of unity that you need. We, you know, corporate speak is alignment, the alignment you need, you know, to really make progress. And why is that? I, I give this a lot of thought. I, I philosophize about a lot of these different topics. And, and I think it's because, you know, the in-house world really inherited the structure from the law firms, which historically have been set up by these very siloed practice areas. And there wasn't a lot of overlap, right? I think it's only been in the last, you know, 10, 20 years that we're starting to see the convergence of all these areas. Uh, and it, and it's, it's kind of like a, you know, hospital system, where you know the more you learn about how to treat, say, diabetes, you understand there's all these other issues, but they all tie together, right? You have like wound care, and you have you know the blood sugar and the nutrition, and you know the doctors are similar to lawyers; they've always be, you know specialized and stayed in their lane, and you're not going to get the kind of alignment you need to get to move forward like that. So I believe that we start to foster that kind of alignment for progress, you start with the organizational structure um, and you do what you can because of this overlap in roles responsibilities to you know, make the case uh, that you know, to get this going, you really need to have all these different areas roll up to the same functional leader. And, and that's what's going to help the company, the organization avoid this duplication of effort 
because, you know, when, when you give, I think a lot of people became lawyers so they could have more autonomy and develop that expertise and be a leader in some kind of niche area. And now you're coming in and saying, well, you guys are all doing a lot of the same thing. So now I'm going to tell you what to do. And there's like one thing it took me, again, many years to learn is that you aren't going to enact change by telling people what to do. People hate being told what to do. You know, you can look at Facebook and, you know, when we get into election cycles, you know, vote for this person. Vote. Then they, they deliberately vote for the other person if, if they're pressured right. um, too much on one candidate. So, so what you've got to do is you have to figure out, again, how to create that system where it's symbiotic. Otherwise, when you have the different leaders of these three groups, privacy, security, you know, um, e-discovery rolling up to different managers, then you can make it, it can be done. But the amount of time it takes, you're losing ground. You know, we're talking about you know, the law getting out of technology, and sometimes technology is getting out of the law. You can't keep up, especially with all these, you know, cyber attacks. So I think that you really have to push for that. And I think that what happens when you have those silos is everybody thinks they know and that this is a unique problem to them and they're uniquely positioned to solve it. And they're going to start to duplicate the same processes. They're going to buy duplicative tools, you know, and before IT knows it, they're going to be saddled with unsustainable costs. And, and then you're, you're not mitigating the risk. So you know, what the old school way of doing this, right, is like that IRAC method where you explain to people what is the issue, what's the rule, and scare them in, into compliance based on, you know, what it's truly going to cost and, and, and where the risk lies. And so with privacy, cyber, discovery, what you're having, this convergence of, of challenges and processes is you've got CPRA and these privacy rules, and you've got these regulators in Europe who are starting to heavily fine companies for over-retaining data. And who's traditionally been in charge of data retention, data schedules, but also fishing from that lake, right? That's the e-discovery folks, right? Now you've got cybers in charge of protecting that data lake, or I almost call it a river because of the flow. But in any event, on top of that, we have now in the U.S. the plaintiff's bar. You know, records have become a class action risk. Who would have thought? 15 years ago, we were talking about records management and really their job is to manage the records retention schedule and make sure that it's translated into all the different languages and updated online and do some training and tell people do some record cleanup and carve out the time. And now records become the front and center class action plaintiff's risk with GDP, with CPRA and these other states coming online. So, you know, we, we've got to come up with a way to support this alignment and find leaders who can listen to each other. If you don't have a cohesive org strategy so that they can focus on solving the problems and not proving that they can come up with their own independent solution. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I, I would love your thoughts. We touched on it a bit, and this is data retention. So 
Data retention has been the bane of my existence for decades now. So I've always been an advocate for people not to over-retain stuff. And I think, especially in the legal process, a lot of times is the thought was, let's keep it forever because we may need it or something. And now we're seeing regulations come into play where keeping that data longer than you need it actually becomes a business risk. So it so it it doesn't it's not the type of thing where it's like okay let's buy a new server and just put it in the back room and it's fine you know a lot of that that legacy data and this is kind of what I feel that a lot of companies have and you can give me your thoughts about this but it's a huge problem uh, because I think traditionally there hadn't been any true reason why you couldn't keep the data because there there just was no good reason. So now with these laws really hitting on the point about keeping data only, you know, for as long as is needed, uh, I think it's it's going to be a wake-up call for companies. And, you know, as you say, I think it is a huge class action risk that companies have. And we're seeing that, in my view, in, in a lot of the cyber breaches. Because if you look at if you read deeply into the cyber breaches and the stuff that gets breached, a lot of it is legacy data, like the stuff that is doesn't have a high business value, but has a high cyber or privacy risk. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be much easier to, out, I mean, the regulators are, I think, a bit outraged and coming from outside perspective, not understanding that companies weren't just taking the easy road by keeping the data. They actually were incentivized to keep the data because the strong workers management programs were actually in, in the U.S. in my experience. And, you know, continents like Europe didn't even care until GDPR was coming online. And then they're like, oh, we need a records retention schedule. And we actually was an area where we were, you know, kind of far out ahead and also in terms of, of data breaches and, and disclosures. So, then all of a sudden, the pendulum, as it always does, swings really hard the other side, which is now going to be get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it. We don't have to do that. We've been incentivized to keep it because we were afraid of what happens if, you know, we get rid of it and it's on hold and now we're, you know, at risk of spoliating data. So, you know, we, we have a long cycle, a system that supports keeping it and now the question is, you know, what's the risk of doing continuing on this path? And I was attending the American Bar Association Cross Border Institute in the Netherlands, and listening to the regulators and and the companies clear that companies are going to be held accountable for over retaining the data. So that's not the question anymore. It just is what it is. Now the question is, how are we going to execute on that? How do you do it? It's so overwhelming. Right. Like, you know, like you said, all the legacy data, you're, most people don't even know where it is in an organization until a lawsuit comes up and, you know, you kind of stumble into, oh, and, you know, 20 years ago. So so this is the question. And it, it really reminds me the challenges that we faced 10 years ago in e-discovery. This is a technology problem. And. Luckily, there are technology solutions and there's proven processes to tackle it. So at, at least, at least again, we can build on what we've done in the past to move forward. Also, many, many um, deeply entrenched 
tools that companies use, they were never made to get rid of anything. So it was kind of a one way in deal. So it didn't really have capabilities to delete or remove data. So companies are having a huge challenge with that because the, they just weren't made to, to actually get rid of things. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's, a, it's a quandary that I don't think a lot of thought was put into, again, because we weren't really incentivized to think about getting rid of data, and it was just so expensive and time-consuming. Um, but again, I think that you know, using our processes in e-discovery and using you know, the, the basic technology from e-discovery can help us figure out at least where are the at-risk data sources running searches and looking for patient health records, looking for PII, looking for what the company perceives to be the highest risk. And then you look at it, you know, look at the numbers. The numbers paint the story. Is there PII in places you don't expect it to be? Is it higher than the amount that you expected? Is there adequate security around it? If it's in the right place, is it past the retention schedule? Now, now we've got finally a mandate for the records retention group um, to have a seat at the table and push for, for change. And, and does the data go back to the e-discovery problem? The data still might need to be held for other reasons. And so once you have at least the numbers and your story about what your risk is, now you can actually go and use the technology to remediate you know, the rot, the stuff that's redundant, obsolete, trivial, and develop your process, right? What is, and then apply it to the next system, right? And it's iterative and it's agile, but you have to start it. And you have to give somebody in the organization the mandate, which usually comes when the risk is high enough, when there's lawsuits, when there's extreme fines, uh, but I find that a lot of companies still aren't aware of the fines that are coming out of Europe, and they're still overwhelmed with other, you know, challenges like maybe in the cyber area or you know just data mapping still that that they're not ready to to you know push for this kind of you know data remediation for getting rid of of the stuff that's beyond the schedule. So I, I don't. We need to be there. I don't know if everyone's really there yet. <laughs> I don't think there. I don't think people are there yet because I think so many people are firefighting and they're still in that reactive mode. So they feel like, you know, I don't know. I feel like people are taught this in business schools. Like, okay, when this problem happens, then you execute. So it doesn't really talk about how to prevent the problem from happening. So we need more prevention and less reactive. So more offense and less defense. You know, the defense will always be there. But, you know, the real the real gains and value, I think, is more proactive management. So you want to, you know, I tell people, instead of being a firefighter, be Smokey the Bear. Okay, so... Right. <laughs> The analogy I always come back to is similar to yours, but it's a hospital emergency room triage, right? We're, we're, we're still operating out of the ER, right? And it's, that's not where you want most of your patients to come. And, 
you know, we've had to learn this you know, the hard way over and over. When you're in ER mode, you actually get overly comfortable, I think, with, you know, you've got the, you develop your processes to triage, you appoint, you know, the, the people to be the triage nurse, and then you've got the specialists, you got the general doctor that comes first, and you have a, a board, you have metrics, you're measuring how long people are sitting in waiting rooms, and you're reprioritizing, deprioritizing patients, depending on how bad it is. And I, I think it becomes addictive. So it makes sense as to why, you know, we're there because it's almost like telling us what to do next, telling us what to do next. But we actually, to your point, to be smoking the berry, you actually have to step back, right? And say, you know, just because it's urgent doesn't mean it's important. And I love this. I do a lot of reading and I love this book called The Power of Moments. And it really resonated with me. I only read it last year and didn't read the whole thing. But my takeaway was we spend too much time trying to pave over the potholes and not enough time trying to elevate the moments that matter. And I can certainly see myself in this. The perfectionism where I'm just going to sit there and try to, you know, and, and to some degree, my team probably suffered from that perfectionism of let's fix this and and optimize it and further optimize it. And it's like, yeah, but where's the strategy in that? Where's the, how do you elevate the program? How do you elevate your risk management system and protect the company when you're constantly just focused on what's a more efficient way to get the data from, you know, this server to the vendor and then process it and speed it up, you know? So it's really taking that step back and saying that's, where your value lies as a change agent, as a leader of one of these programs or a true information and governance program where they all roll up, which is to figure out what place do you need the organization to be for that? To, to meet company goals and legal risk management goals, where do you need it to be? Brene Brown would say, what does done look like? And then what needs to be true to get there? And so going back to the hospital ER mode, the thing that I thought about after I read an article in Harvard Business Review talking about how to fix the healthcare system, it said, if it's not a life or death issue, then what matters is not the outcome as much as the experience of the process to get the outcome. So when you're a patient and, you know, you're, you've got COVID, then, you know, what is the experience to, to get to the point where you get better or, you know, something like break your arm and, and you get a cast and whatever. And all of a sudden, what matters is how you're treated, the bedside manner, the doctors and the front desk person, the, you know, how long it takes to get an appointment, whether they, you know, screwed it up and you have to go get another cast. And so that really hit me when I was trying to lead the team through a lot of change and supporting attorneys who really didn't want to change. And it was like, you know, we've got to make this a more pleasant, fun experience, you know, and take the focus off of, you know, not losing the case, right? We assume we're not going to lose the case anyway. So, so that's not really the goal. And, and, and make this 
cater more to our stakeholders, to the attorneys. Of course, they don't want to have to upend all their processes and change all their outside counsel relationships. And I think we're a bit like that. Um, We're there a bit in privacy where we're just bombarding our business constituents with questionnaire and the next questionnaire, realizing that, you know, we need to be more strategic. So we're doing things once and we're not trying to be perfect. Right. And, and try to stop making the goal, like to strip the company of all risk. It's not going to happen. Business can't operate that way. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. There's no, there's no one who's a hundred percent risk-free ever. Uh, so I think if that is your goal then you will fail miserably, but I think uh, the, the, the place we need to, to get is for companies to understand what their risks are. So a lot, there are a lot of hidden risks that people may not see. And a lot of that ties back to the data. You know, what data do you have? Why do you have it? Like your example, you know, you may, let's say you do a scan of your environment and you find personal health information in places that you didn't expect it. So, you know, your risk is, you know, like you said, is it protected in the way that it should be protected? Is it in the right place? Is it in the right or the wrong place? So those types of risks, I think, help organizations because once you know what is happening in your environment, you can at least come up with a plan to figure out what's the best way to handle, you know, maybe is this particular incident that has to be handled. And then, as you said, come up with more of a strategy. Like in the future, when we have X, we'll do Y, right? What, what what's happening in the world right now in privacy or security or something that's concerning you most that you see you're like oh I don't like the direction this this is going. I think it's the idea that companies are going to be held strictly liable liable for cyber breaches, and and I think there's some thought leadership out there that's heading that direction. And I, I'm certainly that would serve the plaintiffs far well, but with the volume of ransomwares and attacks, you're seeing the insurance industry suffer. And you say, do we care? Well, we do because the insurance industry is, you know, uh, starting to crack down and, you know, pressure companies to develop these fortresses of, you know, security to, you know, protect the data. It's understandable, but the pendulum always swings too hard, right? We always go from one direction to the other. And and you, again, you know, how feasible is it for a business, a small or medium-sized or even a large business with a long history that's complex and global to, to spend, you know, infinite amount of resources to lock everything down and it really does impede the business. I think this is an area where you end up spending a lot of time trying to figure out, like finding that balance um, when you're in a position to say, no, we're not going to use Slack. No, we're not going to do that. And COVID really kind of washed all that, you know, um, uh, authority away from legal in a sense that people just did what they needed to do to survive as a business. And so it was kind of a reminder that, that that balance is necessary, but, but the, the idea that, that we're going to perfect security and that that is the goal 
and otherwise companies are going to be strictly liable, they're not going to be able to get cybersecurity insurance um, and, and protect their customers from these events. That's, that's not the right direction. It's not going to work. It's going to have a lot of unintended consequences. I agree with that. And I saw an article recently and I, I knew it was going to happen where they said that the cyber insurance market is tightening up. So there are a lot more questionnaires. There are a lot more restrictions. There are, the premiums are a lot higher. Some people can't even get cyber insurance. So I think, you know, the, the issue is a lot of companies have risks that they don't, they're not aware of. So trying to figure out what those risks are is really important. And then figuring out what's the best way that you have in your power to, to you know, mitigate the risk, shift the risk, uh, however you want to handle it. But I think, you know, a lot of companies are caught, um, you know, by surprise, <laughs> you know, with, with because they, they have a, a understanding in their heads, sort of like, oh, well, nothing bad has happened. So then we must be fine and nothing is happening, you know. So you may have been, just been lucky that nothing bad has happened to your organization, but that doesn't mean that you don't have risk. So I think just not, not knowing your risk is a risk in and of itself, isn't it? Yeah, and in that sense, then, then the crackdown on the insurance companies and from the insurance companies flowing to the, their insureds is a good thing, right? Awareness, it all starts with, you know, awareness. And when you're really busy in your silo, let me go back to that, that, that actually can become the most challenging issue is, is raising that awareness. But from that, that's where you create your intention. Right. And if you don't have the awareness, you can't steer with intention. And if you're not steering with intention, then you're just, to your point, assuming everything is great and it really the clock is ticking. So that that that's probably the lawyer's worst nightmare. Right. You know, and, and in my role and in a broader role, it's terrifying. Right. The, the, the fear of now you're responsible for everything <laughs> right. is something that does keep you up at night. Yeah. Drives you to see things very differently than you might have when you were focused more on, on one particular area like e-discovery. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, if it were the world according to Jennifer and we did everything that you said, what would be your wish for privacy anywhere in the world? So whether it be regulation, technology, human stuff, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm a big believer in no matter what you do, um, the powers in alignment and in relationships, right? You, you can buy technology, um, and you still have to tell it what to do. And to tell it what to do, you have to have, you know, the buy-in from the people who have the most at stake. And it's hard to do that, you know, in, a, in an agile, effective way, unless you have the right relationships and the right perspectives and you know what you don't know. And so, you know, to me, we have to continue to remember um, and learn about how to communicate, how to provide you know, feedback, 
uh, how to hold people accountable for doing their job, but without judgment and deepen those relationships. And even if it's somebody you don't think you, you know, interact with on a day-to-day basis or have a direct impact on, on your work and privacy, you still need to invest in, in certain relationships and broaden out your network because you never know when that one day comes and you need, you know, to call a, the data diva, um, you know, and, and, and get help, you know, from the different areas of the company and the different, um, you know, functional leaders. So we're all in this together. And I think that is a mandate to continue to have these fantastic conversations like what I had with the American Bar Association um, and um, other great organizations who are bringing us together so we can learn from each other. We're not inventing the wheel. Well, thank you for the plug there. I really appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that I think you're right. I think we need to have deeper, more complex conversations uh, that are not siloed. So we need more people reaching across in you know from different uh, areas and being able to talk together because we're all having the same problem. So that knowledge sharing is really critical and key and can probably save you know, companies, millions of dollars and resource and efforts if we're just, you know, learning from one another. Yeah, and I can add one more thought to that. Uh, Maureen Allison, the CISO for Johnson & Johnson, and I've quoted her in interviews before, but, you know, she stood up at a conference and said, we need people from all walks of life. And I, if I could say the thing that frustrates me the most about cyber is that there's folks who got into it so they could develop their area of expertise and, be, you know, become a leader. And they don't always see things in a different way or welcome other different perspectives, different backgrounds to the table, right? You know, sometimes, you know, they're, they're using knowledge as power. And we are not going to move the conversation forward. We're not going to develop these solutions in privacy or security without diversity and and valuing that it's not just, you know, a programmer you need at the table. It's not just, you know, a um, security ops leader. It's you need PR people. You need creatives. You need people who can draw on their um, background from other types of areas. And, and I saw this in law firms. You know, when, when the law firm valued the worker bee and only wanted associates to sit in an office and crank out briefs, right, and not learn how to litigate, interact with clients and, and develop, you know, solutions for them, you know, the, the law firm started to run out of clients, right? You have to bring other people to the table and value that there are other skill sets that, you know, that you don't have. And then you can do it, you know, create those solutions a lot faster when you have the right group of people, but a much broader skill set at the table. 
I agree. It creates more richness within the organization. So I always like to say, I, I use an analogy. Let's say if you had um, you had a subject that you want to take a photograph of and you gave 20 people a camera and told them to take a picture of the same subject, those 20 different people will have different pictures because they have a different perspective of that subject. So I think, you know, the types of problems and issues that we're having, even though we're talking about data, these are human problems, right? So you need different types of humans to be part of the conversation to really and truly get a fulsome view of what the problem is and the solution. Yep, bingo. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited that we were able to, to get together and hopefully in the, in the future we can collaborate and hang out and have drinks and talk about fashion. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I'll talk to you. We'll talk soon. Okay. Great.